Is this thing on? Hello? Hi, bruisers. It's been a while since our last episode, but we have a good reason. We bought our own home, which we're really excited about. It's not a traditional home. It's an RV that we can take on our travels. Um, we can drive down to Florida, uh, go through the East Coast, maybe stop at a national park here and there. So we've been very preoccupied with picking up our current life, which is in 1,200 square feet, and getting it down to 325 square feet. So yeah, it's been, it's been a lot. Um, another reason for the delay on our episodes is that Patrick is getting so close to his Nidon test, which for those of you not up on your archaic Japanese ranking terminology, it is his second degree black belt. For that test, Patrick had to write a paper. So for this episode, we thought it might be a good idea to read that paper to you since it is very bruisers-esque, minus the casual swearing. <laughs> um, I am so excited for you guys to hear this. It just paints such a perfect picture of Patrick's journey through martial arts and his growth. You guys are in for a treat. So sit back, guards up, and stay tuned. I'll see you at the end of the episode. Many of the patrons I interact with at the library are the kinds of ladies who read a genre of fiction called cozy mysteries, often murderless, rainy weather mysteries with low stakes and wordplay for titles like Thread on Arrival, a whodunit involving a weekly sewing club who hem their grandson's pants by day and solve thefts at night. Although this group is part of the hardy generation that survived Depression-era minimalism and took to the factories following the diaspora of young fighting men into Europe, they are still surprised to see my knuckles. A bruise, a cut, a band-aid, or in the rare cases of a rough spar, a slight, slight hematoma incites their motherly instincts, and I get a genuine, compassionate, Patrick, what happened to you? Now, I, I'm proud of my karate training, but over the years I have tinkered my response from I was attempting to throw another sensei in Tomonage, but my foot was positioned too far to my partner's right and he slipped off me, landing on me with his elbows. <laughs> now, I just say, I train my karate. Now, I say my karate because as an expression of self, the martial arts can manifest in many different ways. For some, it is peace of mind. For others, it's physical health, and for me, sometimes it involves a bruise or two. To this, the concerned voices of cozy mystery-reading grandmothers usually respond with, Patrick, why? Now, why is a good question. Though posed to me by book-loving grandmothers, I have reflected on why I train in karate in my personal moments, alone at night when I can't get to sleep. 
Even after a good spar or training session that leaves me sweaty and worn down, I pack up my gear, shuffle to my car, and before I turn on the music, I wonder, why do I train my karate? There used to be two major reasons I trained. However, as I tumbled through my teens, free fell through my 20s, and landed face first into a steaming pile of adulthood in my 30s, those reasons meant less and less to me. The first of the old reasons was that my brothers trained karate. Simple as that. Martial arts became something of a family tradition. I sat in on conversations as my two older brothers discussed the logistics of certain training methods, the techniques used to off-balance an opponent, and the mastery of this mystical, mysterious thing called kata. With my head filled with designs of Bruce Lee movies and martial arts cartoons like Dragon Ball Z, I wanted to be part of those conversations. I just wanted to be like my brothers. And as a child, I think wanting to imitate your brothers is very natural and very noble. But as I grew up wanting to define my own identity, I realized that imitation is a poor reason to keep getting your butt kicked week after week. In order to put myself through the crucible of training and of black belt tests, I needed a reason that superseded tradition and was more firmly rooted in the person I was trying to be. The second of the old reasons were the cliches often associated with martial arts. You, you know them, you've heard them before. Discipline, confidence, honor, control and balance, etc. These traits are very important, don't get me wrong. But their roots in feudal Japanese culture are often inspired less by a means to make humanity better, and more by a need for those in power to retain power. For example, I'm going to get some of these terms wrong, forgive me, I'm not a native Japanese speaker. The Japanese concept of neio, or honor, was often a way for feudal lords to prevent coup, as the warrior class of samurai outnumbered the smaller, less militant ruling class by large percentages. This concept was paired with chu, or duty, which prevented commoners from changing their station in life. A farmer, for example, who doesn't want to farm anymore is now bound by duty to stay poor and docile. For those reasons, the interpretation of those concepts requires a more nuanced and personal reflection. And as I continued my martial arts training, I found that the discovery of Maio or Chu ran alongside karate but was not exclusive to it. Perhaps even I would unravel those ideas in any other discipline. So. When the ladies ask me why, and when I'm alone at night reflecting on karate, the two reasons that used to inspire my answer are no longer meaningful to me.
answer slowly came to me in the library of all places, where I would read the books of Gichin Funakoshi and other early karate pioneers. A concept that overlapped with many of their philosophical musings was that karate is meant to be learned, but ideally never used. Now that's a paradox. Karate is the pursuit of violent methods in order to cultivate internal and external peace. Despite its warring history, China, India, the Middle East, and Europe had developed all early codes of nonviolence. In modern day, pacifism is explored in cinema with the debut of Hero that explores the three stages of sword mastery, the final of which is to not use the sword at all once the student reaches the highest level of skill. This concept was really difficult for me to reconcile with the world the way it is. Around the globe and across America, calls for violence are ever-present. Jamal Khashoggi, champion of peace, was discreetly murdered in the Saudi Arabian consulate. Chen Qixi of China, who, against state-mandated censorship, reported on the coronavirus, is now detained under state-supervised quarantine. Hmm. Malala, activist for women's rights in the Middle East, was shot in the head after going to school despite the Taliban's threats. Brian Sicknick died while defending the U.S. Capitol from rioters on January 6th. In my own community in the city of Rochester, violence is pervasive. Businesses in downtown Rochester were looted by burglars. My neighbors, immigrants from Yemen, have to walk by a plethora of graffitied swastikas as they walk half a mile every day to run their corner store. A swarm of officers was called to a house a few addresses down from mine because a disturbed man called the police asking for suicide by cop. The stairs by the river trail, designed to allow accessibility to anyone who wants to partake on the path, it's repeatedly defaced and destroyed. The vacuum company building sits abandoned on its lot, collecting piles of trash and waste as environmentally destructive business practices of the 80s and 90s left the ground literally poisonous. Dogs are often chained and abandoned to the elements behind buildings like this. Around the world and in my own community, I see a great swell of evil. It is hard to not desire justice. With the training I've received in the martial arts, I would reject the lukewarm pacifism of Funakoshi and others who had the luxury of Zen gardens and mountain retreats of the aristocratic Japanese, and I would, in fact, fight. I believe that the world is worth fighting for, and I still do. However, in the spiritual fury that erupted from me after a long string of violent happenings in the world and in my community, culminating in a gun being pulled on me over the summer, I believed every battle must be fought and must be won. There's a kind of puritanical zeal that comes along with trying to force the world to be the way we want it. There is a heavy disgust with other people. There is a vacuous numbness when people behave in a way that we deem poor or unethical. There is an exhaustion that is one part physical, one part mental, one part spiritual that sets on us when no battle is left unfought. I thought this was good. I thought threatening the drunk man that stumbled by my house every day and occasionally puked on my lawn was good. I thought shouting back at the drug-inspired ravings of vagabonds lurking around abandoned buildings was just. I thought it was paramount 
even righteous, to instill a kind of fear into every person who did not share the community values I did. When we think we are good, we think we are right, and we suddenly stop listening. I became so filled with a faux righteous fervor that I did not realize I was pouring more vitriol and more violence into the people I was confronting. I didn't realize that ultimately I was someone else's story about why the neighborhood was bad. I was the guy who yelled at people on the street. I was the guy who might be violent enough to throw you on the pavement. I was the guy who scared the kids at the end of the river walk. I was at an impasse. It seemed to me that the two options available to me were strict, nonviolent pacifism or an active, aggressive crusade against what I saw was a growing danger in the community. I could do nothing, or I could be part of the problem. Generally speaking, human behavior operates in binary. We chisel down large, complicated moral matrices into two outcomes. There's even a philosophical principle called Occam's Razor that discourages theories beyond the most obvious ones. We see the dichotomy in our rule sets, good and evil, us and them. I started to wonder why human beings resort to this tribalism. At first, I thought it might be fear-based logic. The motivation of those who identify so strongly to a dualistic philosophy might be that being so deeply entrenched in one camp or the other provides a kind of kinship. This kinship is Neolithic code for survival, as larger gatherings of pro-magnon provided security against the wild, natural, and dangerous earth. Now, this partly answers my question, but it fails to provide a fuller context of the human condition. Fear-based theories often lack one initial cause. Essentially, what are we afraid of? Of course, danger. Yeah, both bodily and otherwise. It's a consistent concern for human beings throughout history. However, with modern comforts and the modern rule of law, largely, the average person in the Western world does not share in the same anxieties of their Neolithic ancestors. So again, why? Why do we do that to ourselves? This leads me to the open speculation that is very rooted in anecdotal experience rather than scientific evidence. I would have to say that I believe what modern man is most afraid of is his own vulnerability. I can only use myself as a reference as I reflect on this statement. When I was poorest, I tried to not look poor, so I bought expensive clothes. When I was physically weakest, I often talked, usually drunkenly, about all the fights I won over the years. When I was mentally weakest, I shared trite wisdom that would more or less be found on any scrap of paper in any fortune cookie in the world. Being vulnerable is the scariest thing a man can be because he suddenly has to admit to himself 
that maybe he is weak. Man is most vulnerable when he is alone, so he entrenches himself with others to fight what he deems as the other, the culmination of all things he would hope to beat in himself. Being away from the pack is so frightening that even Frederick Nietzsche wrote about this oppressive influence on our own psyches when we go alone on our own path. He said, it is what one takes into solitude that grows there, the beast within included. Even when we are physically alone, not ideologically alone, we still encounter the great swell of anxiety that haunts the solitary path. This is essentially how I answered the question, why do I train my karate? Karate woke up in me different hues of strength. Among these, there are the obvious physical and mental benefits. I can lift more weight after training, and I'm more prepared for the cerebral fatigue that can exhaust the martial artist after long bouts of sustained exercise, like when my first senseis had us hold horse stance for interminable minutes. But there's a more important kind of strength. There's a hidden spiritual strength that also developed. This development was somewhat serendipitous, since matters that test the heart of a martial artist cannot be manufactured. Where the body can be trained on a schedule and the mind can be tested under pre-planned conditions, the soul only meets an adversary during unplanned encounters. Karate gave me an avenue, on more occasions than perhaps the average person has, to confront the metal of my spirit. That is the utility of martial arts. It exposes some deeply buried essence of who we are. Karate strips me down. Karate shaves away the superfluous parts of my identity. Karate saps out the strength to hold up my arms. Karate dissolves the pompous vocabulary I blurt out before a spar, the I will never taps or I will never surrenders. When those things are gone, man, I'm only left with the one intangible element of who I am. That is how karate trains the spirit. I had one particularly harrowing spiritual exercise at the dojo. And funny enough, it didn't have to do with sparring or grappling or kata. My papa was diagnosed with dementia, and for many years his physical and mental health degraded. Because he had moved into our home, my mom was his primary caregiver, and I had the chance to witness the strained interactions between the two. Dementia can confuse many of its victims, and my papa, who was a captive in Auschwitz during World War II, sometimes thought he was there. He would act suspicious and defensive, and would sometimes think my mom was someone she wasn't, which would lead to some physical fights. It was a terribly slow decay that took many years. When my papa finally died, my oldest brother walked into my room at five in the morning and said, Hey, Patrick, papa died. I didn't say anything, but I sat up in bed. I didn't know what to do next. I didn't know if normal life was supposed to continue until someone told me otherwise, 
or if I was supposed to stop what I was doing and await commands from the funeral home. I didn't end up going back to sleep. I just nervously paced around the house, driving myself mad with the anticipation of what was to come next until I decided to restore some sense of normalcy and go to the dojo where I would teach a class. I remember feeling very thin when I arrived. I hadn't eaten and my arms were almost sickeningly bony. My mind was also whirling with the strange unknowns of death. No one that close to me had died before so I didn't know the traditions of a funeral or how my papa would look in a casket or what to say to my parents when I finally saw them again. It was then that my older brother, Chris, whose participation and mastery of karate inspired me to get involved in martial arts so many years ago, arrived at the dojo as well. He brought subs with him to share with me, knowing that in a grieving limbo we both would find our way to the dojo. We ate in silence. Even though I had so many questions and wanted to say so much, I kept looking at the clock, wondering if I had what it took to teach the class. But Chris said to me, Time for class. It was a statement, but it almost was posed like a question. Maybe he wanted to say, You want to take the night off? But when he said that, I remembered, Oh yeah, deep in my soul, I am a sensei. Without the strength in my throat to speak, with the mental clarity to ask the right questions, I was compelled up and out of my chair to grab my belt, cinch it around my waist, teach a class, and confront what was left in my spirit. It was a small reminder of what that feudal Japanese word chu means. It was my duty. I was exposed. I was stripped down to my spirit. But with that spiritual strength, I can walk the harder path. I can step away from the camp where others believe there are only two possible resolutions to a conflict. I can start to reconcile the humanity of pacifism with the ferocity of wanting to change my community. I can walk the harder path. Karate has made me strong enough to be empathetic. Karate has given me the legs to stand in someone else's shoes. With the exception of the first belt, the colored belts along the way to black all have their complements. The complement of yellow is purple, the complement of blue is orange, and so on. Black, however, has no complement. It is chromatically the combination of all colors. I think in that there is a lot of wisdom. The dichotomy of complements is replaced once one reaches a black belt. When I finally earned my black belt, the seed of this idea, the abolishing of the binary, was planted. Now I am strong enough to go my own way. It was once explained to me using extension cords. Someone once told me that the tangled extension cords are often a frustratingly difficult task to wrangle. A quickly angered mind might toss the cords and buy new ones. A lazy one might leave it for another day. But a discerning, careful eye will take the time to untangle every loop and snag. 
And yeah, it's a harder task, but one that saves both the cord and resolves the problem. When the world or my neighborhood is at its worst, I no longer ask, how can I furiously destroy you? Now I ask, how can I tirelessly make you better? My family unit has participated in community cleanup efforts. I deliver food my wife cooks to overworked healthcare worker families. I sit with the neighborhood drunk now who talks about how he misses his family. We visit the mentally ill neighbor across the street. I show the kids next door my punching bag and explain to them the proper form when they hit it. We use the energy that might more easily be used to entrench ourselves and berate others, to grow now, and to communicate. It is the harder path. I train in karate so I'm strong enough to walk that path until Long after I am gone, there is a world where the most terrible crime might be something akin to a cozy mystery. Until then, I will keep training, and I will stay true to the path of the black belt. Um, right now I'm very tired. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's been, a, it's been a long few weeks. Yeah, but I, I, I feel good. We've gotten a lot done, and now the new episode's done. Yeah. So? And you've gotten beat up a little bit every day. Yeah, I have a little hematoma on my arm. <laughs> oh, I'll and, put some a bag of peas on it. And I have a boo-boo on my head. <laughs> you want me to kiss it better? <laughs> yeah, my fingers hurt. <laughs> It'll be so worth it, though. You're going to do so well on your I feel test. like I've put forward the best of myself in my training. So whether I pass or not, that's just out of my hands now. I feel like I'm, I'm as ready as I can be. But okay. let's finish off the episode. Okay. <laughs> so I can go to sleep. <laughs> I want to go to sleep. Well, thank you to all the people who make this possible. Yes. Uh, I want to thank Aaron Salentano. For Musica. All the music. All the music. He's so good. He's so talented. Check him out. And he's currently updating uh, our music to create an actual Bruiser's theme. Woohoo! I gave him a lot of... So many references. He's probably... <laughs> he probably has no idea what to do with them. <laughs> uh, then we always want to thank our editor, Lily Myra. Lily! Who got back to me like in a flash as soon as I sent her this. So. She's so good. She's great. She's great. I think she she really adds the je ne sais quoi to what the episodes <laughs> are. So thank you, Lily. Um, other than that, if you guys ever have any questions or ever want to reach out to us, you can always reach out to us in our so, so, social medias. <laughs> our social medias at at Bruisers Podcast on Instagram and. Email. Our email, yes, that was the other one. Our email is <laughs> bruisers.podcast at gmail.com. Hit us up. Hit us up. Any last words? Uh, thank you to our listeners. Oh, yeah, our listeners. For listening and putting up with our um, weird banter. We appreciate you. Appreciate you. It's almost Christmas. He's almost